Please turn in your Bibles to this morning's scripture. Psalm chapter 110, verses 1 through 7. If you'd like to follow along using a pew Bible, you can find the passage on page 509. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 110, beginning with verse 1, the Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Lord, we ask this morning that you would open a door in our hearts for your word. Give us eyes to see as we proclaim the mystery of Christ. And Lord, enable your servant to speak as I ought to, making clear the message of the gospel. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Oprah Winfrey once said that, well, actually, I don't know what Oprah Winfrey said, but I did get most of your attention in that moment, but probably for different reasons, depending on how you feel about Oprah and what your thoughts are on that subject, but it's a good illustration that reminds us that if a speaker or author wants to get his listener's attention dropping a quote in from a famous or infamous person will accomplish that, and it will do the trick. Quotes lend credibility to what you're saying. If I had a nickel for every time C.S. Lewis was quoted from the pulpits of America, I would be a millionaire. Our text today, Psalm 110, authored by King David, is the most quoted psalm by far. In the New Testament, verse 1 alone is quoted at least or alluded to at least 27 times in the New Testament writings. We find it popping up in the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke brings it back to our attention in Peter's sermon in the book of Acts. Uh, The apostle Paul utilizes this psalm uh, in 1 Corinthians, in Colossians, and in other places, as well as The Apostle Peter in his epistle as well quotes this psalm. 
And the author of Hebrews spends nearly four to five chapters unpacking the material in this psalm for his readers and how it pertains to the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these references leave us no question as to the psalm's subject matter. The kingship and priesthood of God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. If this psalm was that important to the New Testament writers, and was this important to the early church as it began and understood the work and person of Christ, we certainly should pay attention and should dig into this psalm as well to learn what God would have us know from it. Today our confession of faith was the Apostles' Creed, and in those familiar words we confess what we believe about God in his three persons. Have you noticed before that the section on Jesus is chronological in its references? We begin with the past. We believe that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that he was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. He descended into hell. He rose again. He ascended to heaven. Jesus did all of that at a particular point in history. But then, often I think we don't notice, the creed shifts in verb tense. It shifts to the present. If you're not careful, you'll miss it when we say it. It says, looking backwards, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Then it moves to the future and tells us that from there, that seated position of authority next to God the Father, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Well, what does it mean for us that Christ ascended and is currently seated at the right hand of the Father. What is the significance of that present reality? Is he simply waiting there until the time comes for his return? Is he resting from the completed work on the cross while the Spirit and the church build his kingdom here? We give a lot of attention to Jesus' birth. I mean, after all, Christmas is probably the biggest religious celebration in the entire world. We give great emphasis to his death and resurrection during the Easter season. But Jesus' ascension, his enthronement, and his present-day rule from heaven less important than his birth and death and resurrection? I'd like to suggest that they are no less important. All of Jesus' person and work is important. They cannot be separated out as though they are unrelated parts. They work together to form the whole picture of Jesus Christ and his work of redemption. Jesus' present reality has huge implications on our world, on our church, and on you as an individual. Psalm 110, like several that have come before 
in our series of Psalms of the Shepherd King that we've been working through has a parallel structure poetically to it. Verses 1 through 3 are very much parallel to verses 5 through 7, with verse 4 being that central thrust, that central point of the psalm. So as we walk through it today, I'm going to take the points of Roman numeral 1 in your outline, Christ our King, alongside the points of Roman numeral 3, Christ our Judge, to point out the parallelism that exists there. And then we'll finish with verse 4 in Roman numeral 2, Christ our Priest. Our first point is Christ is our King and he rules from heaven. Back to verse 1, reading, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The outset of the psalm, we have a very intriguing arrangement of words. Who's speaking here? And who are they talking about? This is an instance where the original language, the Hebrew, can help us in understanding the conversation that's taking place. It's likely that whichever English translation of the Bible that you are using today, you will see two variations in the spelling of the word Lord in that opening phrase. The first being all capital letters, L-O-R-D, and the second, either a capital or lowercase L, followed by lowercase O-R-D. The translators have done that to indicate to us that there are two different words in the Hebrew, in the original language, for the word that is translated Lord in that opening phrase. The first one, in all caps, is the personal name that God gave to Moses for the people of Israel to use. Yahweh, or the Latin translation that we often use in the church, Jehovah, God. The second one is the word Adonai, and it can be used in a more broad or general sense. It can be referring to specifically God in heaven, but it can also mean Lord or Master uh, in a more general sense. One who has authority. So David, as the author of the psalm, is speaking, and he says, in essence, Jehovah, God, says to my Adonai, Lord, well, who is David calling Lord? If David is the speaker here, well, it's Jehovah's Messiah, the Christ. The Apostle Peter in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2 gives us divine commentary on the identity of David's Lord here. He proclaims there, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, quoting Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter leaves no doubt as to who Psalm 110 is talking about. Therefore, know for certain this is Jesus. Jesus himself also addressed this psalm in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. There we read, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? 
David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? That was a mic drop moment for Jesus. He just turned their theology upside down on its head. Of course, the only answer to the puzzle or the riddle that Jesus proposes is that the Messiah is both. He is David's Lord, and he is also David's son. He is both divine and eternal and a human born of David's lineage. Of course, Jesus was that individual. Well, following this opening statement, we have the first of two divine oracles in this psalm, authoritative divine utterances from Jehovah God to his Messiah. God says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Obviously, the Apostles' Creed is pulled right from here as well as the Nicene and other confessions. God has exalted Jesus to his right hand. This is his present state. He is no longer the babe in the manger. He is no longer the suffering savior upon the cross of Calvary. He is no longer walking on earth with his disciples. Jesus Christ is enthroned in heaven at the right hand of the Father, ruling the universe. He has been coronated King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And God the Father has promised that all of Jesus' enemies will be subdued, humbled, and humiliated under his feet. We see a parallelism in verse 5 where it says, it repeats this idea, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Here Christ has fulfilled the oracle from verse 1. And Christ, our judge, is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And from that position of authority, he judges the world. Those enemies that have been made a footstool will include the rebellious kings of the earth, that we saw even a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 2, as Reverend McDaniel preached the message. Christ our King rules from heaven, and Christ our Judge judges from a position of authority. In verse 2, the, the psalm goes on and it tells us that Christ our King rules his enemies. Look at verse 2. The Lord, and again, all capital letters. So Jehovah sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. A declaration to the Messiah. In his exalted position at the right hand of God, Christ's scepter, that representation of a monarch's rule, it extends out from Zion the dwelling place of God, to the far reaches of the globe. There is no place that the Lord Jesus' reign does not cover on planet Earth. For what other monarch could reign in the midst of their enemies? It's an interesting turn of a phrase. 
Even while he is awaiting their final and complete ruin, Jesus is sovereignly reigning right in the middle of his enemy's rebellion. He's not back on his heels hoping for a good outcome. Jesus is ruling completely and entirely, and none of his enemy's actions happen outside the scope of his providence and will. Not even death. 1 Corinthians 15, that glorious chapter on the resurrection, the Apostle Paul tells us, then comes the end, when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, referencing back to this psalm. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Even death will succumb to the reign of Christ and will be defeated and conquered. Here we see again exactly what David is prophesying. And Paul says that that greatest of enemies, death, cannot escape the sovereign reign of Christ and its own eventual destruction. And even now, though we must face it, Death has no power over us if we belong to him. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. In the parallel verse, in verse 6, we read that he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. As Christ the King rules in the midst of his enemies, even now, Christ, our judge, judges fairly. And he will not let wickedness go unpunished. It's difficult to see the news when it looks like the bad guys are winning. But Jesus is a fair judge. There will be a reckoning with the king one day for those who refuse to submit to his authority and rule. No one will be able to say that he has been unjust or unfair in that day. He will act perfectly in his justice, his judgment, and in grace. This current rule of the Messiah occurs as he is seated on his throne, we're told. And it is also an indirect reign through his kingdom on earth, the church. Not only does he rule his enemies, but Christ, our king, rules his subjects. Look at verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Well, freely offering oneself to Christ is the believer's natural response to the gospel. We must align our purpose in this life with Jesus' purpose for us. You may recall at the conclusion of his glorious treatise on the gospel in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul in chapter 12 says this about a response to that good news. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Child of God, is there any other response that you can give to the Lord who saved you other than to give your all? Wesley says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. As Christ is reigning from heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, he is actively conquering and subduing the hearts of women, men, and children in every corner of the globe, in every nation, every tribe, and in every language. His church, an army bold whose battle cry is love, as the hymn says, marches forward, reaching out to those in darkness. This is our calling. We are his people. We are his ambassadors in this battle. We are to offer ourselves freely in the power of his spirit and in the holy garments of his righteousness as servants and soldiers of the king. Christ, our king, rules from heaven. He rules his enemies and he rules his subjects. In parallel fashion, verses 3 and 7 conclude with respective sections which on first pass seem to be very strange poetic insertions. In verse 3 we have, your people will offer themselves freely, and then this statement, from the womb of the morning the dew of your youth will be yours. And in verse 7, as it concludes in a poetic expression, speaking of the Messiah, not the people, he says, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Well, this is perhaps some speculation on my part, but both expressions have a sense of immediacy and readiness. In the first instance, perhaps it's comparing the army of the Lord the people of God, to the morning dew which appears everywhere, suddenly, at first light. And in the second expression, the Messiah himself, a a warrior leader who pauses for refreshment without looking down into the brook to lap up the water like a dog, but to keep his head up while drinking so as to be alert to his surroundings. He's quickly refreshed and ready to continue the battle at hand recalls the story of Gideon, doesn't it? When God selected only those who were alert in this manner to serve and to go into battle for the Lord. The Messiah is in the midst of the battle with his people and he will judge the world completely and fully, leaving nothing undone, not stopping to rest until it is complete. Christ our King rules his subjects and Christ our Judge judges completely and holy, leaving nothing undone. The eternal king and judge will lead us to completion. Our shorter catechism summarizes Jesus' office as king that we have been looking at in this summary. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. In verse 4, we have the second of the two oracles of the psalm. Another pronouncement from God about Christ 
Notice there, and again it begins with the Lord in all caps. Jehovah is speaking. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Quote, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On its own, in my opinion, I think this is one of the most mysterious and perhaps unfortunately neglected verses in all of the Bible. But did you notice the enormous weight that God gives this statement? First, we see that this oracle, this pronouncement of God himself, unlike the first one, is accompanied by an oath. God swears it. Next, God declares that he will not change his mind about it. Now, we could spend some time this morning chasing the rabbit of God's immutability, his unchanging nature, but we'll have to save that for another time. The point I want to make for us today is to see what significance God is giving the statement, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The next point in the outline, Christ our priest. But who in the world is Melchizedek? What is his priestly order? And why is Christ part of it? Well, David, in writing the psalm, would have had very little information about Melchizedek. This character appears briefly in a story with Abraham in Genesis chapter 14, a thousand years before David penned the psalm. The account is only four verses long. So a coalition of regional kings had attacked Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding city-states. They had devastated them. This is before God's judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah and had taken away many of the residents as captives, including Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his family and all his possessions. Abraham gets word about what's happened and he puts together a few hundred men and goes to rescue Lot and his family from these kings and from those that attacked. And after he returns victorious, bringing Lot and his family home, here's the account we have. The king of Sodom went out to meet Abraham at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. This is the entire historical record that we have of Melchizedek. Well, there are a few things that we can learn about him from this brief account. First, his name means king of righteousness. Next, we learn that he was the king of Salem, which means peace. Jerusalem is the city of peace. Melchizedek is the king of that city that is named peace. He also brought Abram bread and wine to refresh and sustain him. 
We're told that Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High. He pronounced a blessing on Abraham. And Abraham, in turn, gave Melchizedek a tithe of the spoils of his conquest. Well, we can also learn a little bit about him, about what's not revealed. The author of Hebrews tells us that he was without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So if you look in the account, we don't know where this person's come from. There's no genealogy. There's no lineage. We don't know his father, his mother. We don't know if he had a beginning or an end. Some have suggested that he was an angel or a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Well, we don't know for sure. And it's only speculation to go down that road. But there is much to uncover here, even without having that completed information, especially as it relates to the author of Hebrews. But a particular note is that Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. Now hang with me, I know we're getting a little bit academic here, but this is important. This is an unusual combination, one which under the laws of the nation of Israel given to Moses could not have existed. Because in Israel, the kings were descended from Judah and the priests were descended from Levi. It was a separation of powers. No one could be a king and a priest. But Jesus, the Messiah, needed to be king and priest in order to accomplish his work and to fulfill his role as the Messiah. Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah, an ancestor of David, and in line for the throne to be king. But Jesus' priesthood was not one of the Levitical order. His priestly order predates and supersedes that of the Levitical order. His priesthood is of the order of the priest of the Most High God, who is also the king of righteousness and peace, Melchizedek. That's some good stuff right there. His priesthood is a better one than those serving in Israel's temple. And God's people would have to wait another thousand years after David's psalm to see that fulfillment when Christ came in the flesh to be our priest. The author of the letter to the Hebrews spends a significant amount of time unpacking this relationship between Melchizedek and Christ. We read in Hebrews 10, 11 that day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But, speaking of Jesus, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, quoting Psalm 110 again, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's us. Jesus as priest does what no mortal, sinful, earthly priest could ever do. Christ, our priest, saves us from evil, from sin. He redeems us from death. Unlike the other high priests of Israel's past, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. 
That's why our communion table is not an altar of sacrifice, but a table of fellowship. Because Jesus sacrificed for our sins once for all when he offered himself on the cross of Calvary. Jesus Christ is the perfect, eternal high priest, not after the pattern of Levi, but a priest in the order of Melchizedek, because the priests of Levi could never satisfy our need for salvation. Be thankful for that amazing and glorious truth. And Christ our priest saves from evil, and he also saves entirely and completely. In Hebrews 7, beginning with verse 20, we're told that the Levites became priests without an oath. But as we've already seen in verse 4 of the psalm, Jesus became a priest with an oath, and with an oath sworn by God. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind that you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor, the underwriter, the backer of a better covenant. Have you ever shaken a hand only for that promise to be broken? Have you ever made vows to someone only to have them shattered? Not so with God. Not so with our Messiah. Many priests came and went through the centuries since death cut their ministry short. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood is permanent. And he is able to save entirely and completely those who come to God through him. As we sang earlier, he ever lives above for me to intercede. And he is doing this work of intercession for us even now. Right now. This moment. Our prayers, our songs, our worship, my preaching. None of it could rise above this ceiling without the intercession of Jesus at the right hand of the Father. He is your priest. You don't need an earthly priest or pastor to mediate for you. You need Jesus himself and his promise to you if you believe in him is that you have him in his office of priest before the father. You are accepted by the father as if you were Jesus himself. In Jesus we have a high priest, holy innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And as Paul said to the Philippian church, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. No more warring with your flesh. No more falling into sin yet again. No more fear of death and suffering. No more guilt or shame because he will save you to the uttermost, completely, holy, once and for all. And Christ, our priest, saves eternally. Listen to these additional amazing words 
from the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 17 and following. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, hearkening back to the psalm, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. How can we ever doubt our salvation in Christ? Is God a liar? Why is this priesthood of Jesus so important? What is it, why is it significant that God swore an oath about his priesthood? Because when it seems as though the door of heaven is shut to you, you need an advocate pleading your case at the right hand of the Father. And when the ship of your soul is being tossed about on the violent waves of fear and despair, you need a sure and steadfast anchor to hold you fast. And when the accuser comes, dangling that sin before your eye, the eyes of your heart once again, you need a glimpse behind the curtain of the holy place where this priest of the God Most High, Jesus Christ, sprinkled his own blood for you on the mercy seat. And on that day, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you need to see, even as Stephen saw when he was being stoned, the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father standing up on your behalf to receive you into his kingdom. Christ, our priest, saves from evil, saves entirely, and saves eternally. Do you know this king and priest that we have talked about, that we have prayed to, that we have confessed and sung about today? Who do you say that David's Lord is? Do you confess like Peter? You are the Christ, the son of the living God, the Bible tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you know him, does your understanding of him as king and priest influence how you live out your life each day? Do you trust him as king and lord? Or are you holding back from his sovereign reign in your life? Do those around you recognize that you are not your own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to your faithful savior and king? And are you resting in him as your priest, are you bringing your own filthy rags of righteousness to him? If you belong to him, stop trying to win his favor. You already have it. So live like it. 
We're about to respond to what God has said to us today by praying a song together. I need thee every hour. Do me a favor. Don't waste the song by singing it without praying it. Come to Christ as you sing with all of your deficiency and all of your neediness and find in him your all in all. Let's pray. Oh God, we confess that every hour of every day, every moment of our lives, we need you. We need a king to rule us in our rebellion. We need a priest to forgive us in our sin. We need you to plead for us at the right hand of the Father. And Lord, we thank you for the reality that that is true. That it is so true that you have sworn an oath that we have a great high priest in Christ. And that he is enough for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the salvation that we have in him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.